This call is being recorded. All right. Welcome to Sustainable Business Friday, hosted by the students of the Bard MBA in Sustainability. My name is Jeff Leatherwood, and I'm a proud alum of the program. I graduated last May, and I'm currently based in New York City and working at the Ford Foundation. Sustainability Business Friday airs twice monthly and features sustainability leaders from around the world and across a huge multitude of sectors. And the series is available after the call on podcasts and also edited transcripts appear in GreenBiz. On today's call, Bard MBA sustainability student Alex Santiago will introduce um, our speaker and uh, we'll get some Q&A going and then later in the call we'll open up for questions for anyone who um, has some questions. So Alex, you are a current student in the Bard MBA program and um, graduating soon, if I understand correctly. That is correct. (laughs) How excited are you about that? I'm very excited, but with graduation always comes a little bit of trepidation, wondering how you're going to impact the world, but I'm excited. Yeah, I got to tell you, you know, I don't, I don't um, miss homework that much, but I miss the energy of my, of my peers in the program. You know, I still keep in touch with a lot of them, but there's something about, about those class sessions that just really gets ideas buzzing and is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, there's only two more months left, so that's two more of the, our low, um, low residency structure, and I'm definitely going to miss the power of the collective when we come together, but going to cherish it until then. What's your, what's your favorite class this semester? What are you enjoying right now? Or you don't have to play favorites, but what's the class you're enjoying at the moment? Well, at, at Bard MBA, we have something called our Capstone Project, which is similar to a thesis, except that you really get to pave your own adventure. And mine's finally coming um, to fruition, and I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm not sure if I should talk about it here because I want to make sure we have time for our um, our guest. But I would definitely say, well, the give, me the, give me the give me the, the quick gist? elevator pitch. Give me the three sentences that that is, yeah. is what you're it's, up to. Sure, it's called the How She Does It Dinner Series, and it will be hosted at either woman-owned restaurants or uh, restaurants with women chefs. And the whole point of it is to actually create a community of intergenerations of women. So think of it as an old boys club, but for women and better, because there's not many times that women of different ages get to get get together and share ideas on business and life. I love it. I've, count me in. All right, well, awesome. let's get started. Perfect. Well, thank you for the kind introduction, Jeff. I really appreciate it. And today we are introducing Talia Bosk. She was up until recently the Vice President of Social Ventures, Internal Communications and Global Events at Western Union. So she headed the Western Union Global Engagement Team within the Corporate Communications Function, and she's led efforts to leverage Western Union, which is actually a 164-year-old company, so all the assets, including shared value products, responsible operations, cause-related marketing, data, and thought leadership for greater business and social impact. She's led a number of award-winning and hugely impactful programs, such as Our World, Our Family, uh, which is a five-year, $50 million commitment to creating global economic opportunity. Uh, but I don't want to get too much into it because I want Talia to tell some juicy details. So without further ado, Talia... I would love to know a little bit about what is it like in just the day-to-day of being, um, up until recently, the VP of Social Ventures at Western Union? 
Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for hosting this series. I think it is so critical to engage people across sectors and across roles uh, to drive greater impact together and to learn from one another. So I'm sure that I'll learn a lot during this call. And, and that learning is really, I think, a hallmark of all of the roles that I've had at Western Union was certainly no exception. So in a word, what is it like? Busy. <laughs> very, very busy. Uh, long hours, a lot of travel. And I think, you know, what I love the most and also one of the greatest challenges is that there is so much promise on the horizon. There is just so much uh, opportunity for impact, which is energizing, but also sometimes a little bit frustrating because I think for any of us um, you know, that really want to see returns, we always see you know, greater opportunity. The opportunity outstrips any return that you can have, but um, I think that's what keeps us going. Wonderful. Um, and it, that's kind of like a good problem to have, right? There's so exactly. much cause, promise that it's a, it's a good thing to be busy with, so I like how you frame that. Um, I really wanted to dive into the impact of the Our World, Our Family program. And I noticed that um, unlike most, a lot of different companies that have CSR initiatives, um, sometimes their CSR initiatives are a little bit more ad hoc and not in alignment with their core business strategy. And Western Union does a really great job about that. And when I was, I wanted to know a little bit more about the program, if you can tell us, and then how it's in alignment with Western Union's overall strategy. Absolutely. It, you know, it's really been a journey. So I first started working with Western Union way back in 2006 when the company was spinning off from First Data, which uh, was a very different uh, kind of back-end processing company. And Western Union is a very public consumer-facing brand. And I actually started working with the company as a consultant looking at uh, how the company could define its brand purpose in a way that would resonate with its consumers. And it started with a fairly small project that grew into our world, our family. And it seems obvious now, but at the time, uh, the company's giving, the foundation giving and its other work was literally and figuratively, you know, all over the map. And, and there's something really good about that. I mean, I think they were highly responsive and great about being opportunistic around community needs and interests of the many, many agents and partners that the company deals with. But it wasn't really, as you say, fully aligned, right? There was still opportunity being left on the table. And so what we did was to a fairly rigorous analysis of what the brand would stand for, what it had historically stood for, what it would stand for moving forward as a standalone company, what mattered most to, to customers, to business partners, and really to the communities Western Union serves. And that was interesting because at Western Union, every transaction has both a sender and a receiver. So we would be looking at communities, say, both in the United States, UK, Italy, France, etc., but also the people that they were sending money to um, on the received side, which, you know, as you say, the company operates in 200 countries and territories, really all but about two. So that, that was pretty broad research. And what we found was, you know, again, today seems fairly obvious, but at the time, it felt uh, fairly constricting to think about focusing just on economic opportunity. But that's really what Western Union creates. You know, last year, uh, the company moved about 100, uh, $185 billion, which is more than the GDP of 147 countries. So wow. that is a staggering amount of money. And part of what we were trying to do was to help people on the SEND side have better opportunities 
ultimately so that they could send more money home if they choose to or you know, move in other directions, start small businesses. Many, many migrants are very entrepreneurial and that's been an increasing focus for the company over time. But then also on the received side, find more productive use of capital. And so it aligned really closely with uh, the needs of the people that come, uh, Western Union is serving and also helped articulate for the first time uh, the company's core social purpose. No, I, I love that, especially when you when you consider all those stakeholders. And I, you painted a very clear picture of how every transaction has a sender and a receiver. And with all the different companies, you have a huge portfolio, so 200 countries and territories. And I know the culture in these countries vary way across the spectrum, as well as the needs of all these customers. So something I was noticing, like not noticing, but there's a huge inequality when it comes to women and men throughout the world. So how has Western Union in the past, through its financial services, uh, been able to cater to the different cultures? Because women have different access to different economic opportunities depending on where they are. So did Western yeah. Union do something specific to make sure that was addressed? Yeah, it's something that has been a growing focus for the company over time. Um, and it, it's something that we looked at. One of the things that we did that was um, perhaps a little different from what most companies do was hold what we called a shared value summit. And so I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with the concept of shared value, you know, famously pioneered by Michael Porter and, and the notion that business, um, through its core business, could drive greater business and social impact. And so for us, we really looked at what that would mean from a product perspective. We partnered with the really brilliant and talented team over at BSR, Business for Social Responsibility. I would definitely encourage all of your listeners to follow BSR if they're not already. They have just been fabulous partners for us, and they helped us convene um, a group of external leaders to look at social issues. So rather than starting with what the company need is, we kind of flipped that on its head and we looked at the MDGs. We looked at a variety of social issues. We did a series of three, um, you know, an issue and an audience um, and a product to see, to test this model. And to be really candid, unfortunately, I think a lot of companies, when they get groups like this together, they have a good sense of the program that they want to initiate. And uh, really, this helped Sometimes convening can help tweak a pro uh, program a little bit, but it's a great picture for a CR report, and that's often where it ends. And so for us, it was a real risk because we didn't know where it was going, and we asked our senior leaders to take a leap with us, and we asked our external partners, folks often who haven't done work with us before. That was certainly the case with many of uh, the leaders in financial inclusion for women. You know, they hadn't worked with us before, but we asked them to come together and to think with us about what the major barriers are to women's financial inclusion. We did a fair bit of homework ahead of time, of course, and then to propose to us and, and workshop with us how Western Union could solve that. And we particularly looked at uh, mobile and financial services for women uh, via mobile. And it was interesting because it led us to insights that people really hadn't been asking at the time within the company, like how many of our customers are women today. And we learned that about 50% of senders are women, so really good gender parity there, and an even greater percentage of receivers actually are women. And one of, although the company is definitely expanding in terms of account-based money transfer and, uh, you know, that 
financial system, the more traditional financial system, one of the things that we saw that Western Union enables is because you don't have to have an account to transact, to pay bills or to send and receive money, it really was an on-ramp for women and for others who traditionally can't access formal financial services. And from there, you know, they would start off with, with Western Union through informal services and grow into more account-based uh, opportunities. So we felt good about that and since then have been exploring how we might be able to tailor products and services specifically to women's needs. I love that. And thank you, Talia. And you mentioned BSR. And uh, one of our professors, Laura Gitman, she's the vice president. So we had the fantastic opportunity to actually um, have our New York City lab consulting class as well as strategy. So um, us at BARG, we are very familiar with BSR, and it's fantastic that Western Union uh, worked alongside. And I noticed something in what you just last said. It was saying you had to build buy-in so that other leaders within your company would take the risk, like take, take the leap with us. How were you able to create that buy-in? Um, especially it, it felt a little bit risky and you were – trying to figure out the external needs of other people as opposed, as opposed to Western Union, which is a little bit of an unconventional way to approach a problem in business sometimes. Yeah. Well, at that point, I think we were fortunate because we had already um, gone through the process of creating our world, our family, and I think there was some credibility there. For those who are just getting started, I would say it's really an iterative process. It's a process of listening. You know, I think that the issues and concerns that, say, the CFO might raise are going to be different from what the CMO might raise, but they're both equally valid. And so I think it's really important to listen to your stakeholders within the company, to go back and to confirm what you heard, to stay close to them around what you're going to do about what their questions and concerns are, show how you're making that into a program that will drive both social and business impact. Don't focus too much on either side of the equation. I, I really do believe that for programs to be sustainable, they do need to deliver both. Um, report back on progress. And then when we had results, like we did with Our World, Our Family, which was built slowly over time, you know, many years later, I think that uh, there's a lot more organizational appetite. We also showed how something like this could deliver in ways that other other opportunities couldn't. So you mentioned Laura. She was actually our partner on this, so I have to give her tremendous credit for helping us. <laughs> That's uh, amazing. Get this model. Yeah, no, she is fabulous. Uh, so you are in excellent hands with her. I, I could be more thrilled that you're working with her as well. But um, so, so some of it was certainly uh, you know, credibility of a partner like BSR, but it was also the notion that thinking about shared value in a different way, thinking about social needs in a different way could be a driver of innovation for Western Union. And so it's a company that had, a, you know, has had a very similar model in terms of money transfer since 1871. And it, there's been a lot of innovation over the years. The first uh, consumer credit card, the first commercial satellite, things people don't even know to associate with Western Union. But today, it probably is fair to say that it's not the first company people think of when they think of uh, innovation, and particularly digital innovation. And we thought that there was a way to combine our social purpose with our innovation mandate and, and really break through. And so that was something that resonated very much with the overall corporate strategy and agenda. And that made it a lot easier because, to your point, it's really right down the core of what the company was trying to achieve. So it did not feel in any way kind of like an add-on or off to the side. 
I love that. It's fully integrated. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I appreciate the, the tips that you gave um, fellow entrepreneurs because sometimes a lot of times when you try to implement an initiative such as a shared value one, you re- you face a lot of an- resistance. And something you mentioned was it's important to have both sides of the equation, business and social impact. One can't really sacrifice the other. And you said to report back on progress. I know a lot of times it's really challenging to figure out what's the social return on investment. Um, if if it's permiss um, if it's permitted, is there any way that you can share or give people tips on like how to best calculate a social return on investment? I know it varies, but is there any way any place to start? Yeah, well, that's really tricky. And I would say first, try to think through all of the all of the ways you might be able to deliver social return. So there there probably are some obvious metrics, particularly if you're partnering with NGOs or others, and, and it's not just your direct program, your cross-sector partnerships obviously have become, uh, I think, commonplace over the last 10, 15 years. But uh, your partners probably have a good starting place. Then I would encourage you to to test a little bit more and to figure out what other possible returns are there and how would we know if that's happening. And so really being able to go beyond the metrics that are there today. I'm a huge believer in the voice of the customer, and so not just leaving it with um, you know, so-called development experts or you know, those of us who are sitting in offices around the world, but really getting out into the field and asking the people that you want to serve, what does impact look like for them? And it might be a very different answer than what you were expecting. And then being able to show that you're delivering against not only your own expectations or your NGO partner's expectations, but including a fair degree of the voice of the customer, I think is very compelling and incredibly important. Um, no. I'd like to Go ahead, uh, jump in quickly. Uh, in your, in, you were talking about innovation and about um, Western Union being responsible for for innovations that you know a lot of people wouldn't even think about them having been a part of. And obviously, the last 10, 15, 20 years have been kind of an unprecedented period of of innovation. Um, does the introduction of so-called, you know, disruptors like Venmo and technologies like that, uh, like mobile-based technologies, does that change the way that, that you know, a company like Western Union is looking at, at innovation, both from their traditional business model, but also does, it, does that amplify the importance of being an organization that people view as doing some sort of social good? I I think it does, absolutely. So first of all, it absolutely changes the way the company has thought about innovation. Um, And and the company has been innovating. I don't know that it's – because it's a company people think they know, I don't know that it's recognized for some of the things uh, that are already there. In some ways, it's easier to look at a startup or kind of a shiny new thing that might capture headlines. But, you know, first – remember that every transaction that Western Union completes is in fact an electronic transaction. Um, you know, it's not, no one's moving sacks of cash. So <laughs> that infrastructure was already there. And I think the challenge has been, one of the challenges has been how to build on and innovate within that infrastructure. Um, last year, the company introduced um, Connect, which is an open API. So really an aggressive strategy around partnerships with groups like uh, WeChat. Um, so, so that's in place. But in mobile, it's been 
a, certainly a game changer in a lot of parts of the world, less so in others. You know, so uh, something to keep in mind is sometimes the hype, I think, can a little bit outstrip the reality on the ground, but it's an important indication of where the world is going. And so introducing a mobile app has been critical, and, and the company does have a four-and-a-half-star rated mobile app. Those types of things have been um, important to do. Now, I think the tension that you point to is, does that mobile app necessarily reach the bottom of the pyramid, right? Does it promote financial inclusion? I think it addresses the needs of people um, who are likely to have smartphones, um, certainly in developed countries, but it doesn't necessarily reach to the base of the pyramid yet in all places. And so I think for me, what I thought was really important is the notion of a hybrid economy. You know, in a lot of places, even in the United States, most transactions today are still done in cash, roughly 60%. And then if you go to Germany, it's, sorry, you know, 90% or more. So this goes back to this concept of, of the customer in innovation. And so I think we really need to meet people where they are, not where we want them to be. And so mm -hmm. if people are using cash, we need to think about how we can do that faster, cheaper, better, uh, you know, with, with more of the types of add-ons that they would want. Um, if people are using electronic, they need to be able to do that. And if people want the choice and the flexibility to do electronic sometimes, cash sometimes, electronic perhaps, you know, if you're in the United States and then if you're traveling to India and, and you want to be able to cash out there, and receive money in cash or use cash, you should be able to. And that's just one example. I think it, it should that sort of thinking um, should be true across the board, regardless of the sector that you're in, which is to really listen to what people need today, anticipate where they're likely headed tomorrow, but don't necessarily think in either or terms. You know, it can be a hybrid economy. It can be a hybrid health solution. Um, it doesn't have to be just one way or another. And I think that that's, to me, uh, you know, really critical in innovation. I think that's so key, what you said there. And, and you know, we do have a tendency to look at the new shiny thing and get excited about it. But, you know, how, how much lasting power does that have? And, and is that where the majority of your audience is? That's a staggering stat to me that 60% of transactions in the U.S. are still cash-based. I would have, if, if you asked me to, to guess what that number was, that's, I would have, I would have guessed it was less than half, certainly. Yeah, and, and let me be clear. I don't mean Western Union transactions. I mean all payments for anything with any company yeah. are still yeah. largely cash, and it is staggering. And so, as that said, people also need the opportunity. There needs to be a frictionless way to get them um, off cash and into other ways of transacting if that's what they want. But I think the critical thing is not to have uh, particularly companies, but governments as well, telling especially very poor people, that they need to move to uh, an electronic payments environment if that's not what's right for them today. I think the focus should be on giving people tools and information so they can make informed choices, but then having uh, kind of the courage and the patience to support them in the choices that they make for their own lives. Yep. Uh, thanks for that, Jeff. Uh, definitely feel free. Do you have any other questions? Or do you want to jump in later? Uh, I do, but I'll, I'll just keep I'll keep popping in and out. <laughs> well, well, I was I kind of just wanted to stay on the topic of innovation and technology because, Tali, I wanted to know what sort of trends do you see in the near future? I mean, how soon do you think we will transition to a cashless world? And 
I think there's certain technologies like biometrics and cryptocurrency that a lot of financial services companies are kind of considering. Uh, do you see any disruptors that are going to be game changers, or is it too early to tell? I think it's critical to watch the space. And I don't know any serious player that isn't uh, watching what's happening and what's possible. You know, ultimately, again, the the promise I think outstrips the reality for a lot of people. You know, even with cryptocurrency, the ability to cash out is difficult and sometimes expensive, uh, particularly if you're. Uh, if your alternative is, say, a credit card or other things that give you points and cash back and other types of incentives. That said, the potential of blockchain is staggering. Uh, and so I think it's something that companies, governments, and others will continue to watch. Uh, I think it will take a while. And go back to that stat that even today, 60% of all transactions in the U.S. are in cash. It gives you a sense that it will take a long time. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you have environments like Kenya where change can happen very, very rapidly, where it's compelling enough. One of the things I think we need to look at when it when it comes to those types of innovations is what kinds of safeguards are built into the system. So obviously, the you know the downside of you know a, a Kenyan miracle or revolution, whatever you'd like to call it, is that you know there, if something were to happen to the system that they're using, right? So if um, a company were to fold or were to be in difficult uh, circumstances, which has happened, as we've all seen recently, what safeguards are there for very poor people that ultimately they'll be able to cash out, right? So that system was built primarily originally as a loyalty system and has obviously worked exceptionally well for that. But um, as we think about innovation, I think it's important to look at both the promise but also the peril and make sure that there are reasonable safeguards built in or encouraged uh, wherever possible. Yeah, th thanks for that. And um, like Jeff, I'm also blown away by that 60% um, ratio because especially if like here in the city or major cities, you're like no one even pays for ca with cash. You go to the farmer's market and you want to buy eggs and you realize, wait, I'm going to have cash on me because I can't remember the last time I used it. But you're right, you have to kind of be sensitive to um, the other players in the world. Um, Jeff, I'll, I'm happy to open it up for another question from you. Sure, yeah, although I, I have to say I did um, buy my bagel and coffee with cash this morning, so I'm contributing <laughs> nice. to that to that 60% ratio. So as we look at the, um, the investment space and the, the um, I guess we'll continue down the innovation uh, Wrote a little bit. Um, how how do these innovations, in your mind, contribute to the notion of creating inclusive economies um, worldwide? And and actually, to to take a step back, can you sort of present to us in in your terms what how how you view an inclusive economy and and how how we're we're moving toward that? Yeah, that's a great question and one that's not as easy as it may seem. Um, for me, it has to do with making sure that everybody, you know, regardless of um, their status in society and some of the uh, traditional barriers that, that they may face, whether that be around age or gender or ability or minority status, education status, et cetera, where everybody is able to achieve their goals, 
particularly, you know, if it's relative to the financial system, you know, and I would say their financial goals or goals that they need financing to achieve um, or access to finance to achieve, you know, in a way that is um, as fair as possible, you know, with as few hindrances as possible. So, you know, clearly that would mean if someone is getting a loan, but it's with very predatory conditions, that for me would not count as inclusion. Um, and in fact, Axion and the Center for Financial Inclusion has done a really good job of uh, outlining a roadmap to inclusion as part of their FI 2020 series. And so hmm. if you haven't taken a look at that, I, I would encourage you to do so. And so they outlined um, not just access, which is obviously critical, but financial capability and technology-enabled uh, opportunities. So Hello? I'm still on. Oh, did we did we lose time? I, I was so into what she was saying right then. I know. Uh, I hope maybe she'll dial back. I just want her to know that she's off there. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah, it's hard to know from looking at this here. Thank you for bearing with us during technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she dropped off, so maybe she'll dial back in shortly. Yeah, she was talking about financial capabilities. And Alex, did you know that April is Financial Capabilities Month? I had no idea, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, it was formerly known as. Uh, oh, here, I believe. Hello. Hi, you're back. Hello. Great. Oh, Sorry, I could hear you, and I'm so sorry. Yes. I could hear oh, okay. you, but I'm so sorry that you couldn't hear me. No, that's fine. That's fine. Welcome back. Well, thank you. I guess that points to one of the challenges right there. You know, even in a fairly yeah. developed area like Boston, um, <laughs> technology can be a challenge. Yeah, see, we did that on purpose just to illustrate that point for, uh, <laughs> for people. Um. I was just saying to I was saying to Alex about how uh, April is uh, Financial Capability Month, and uh, which yeah. I guess was formerly known as Financial Literacy Month. Um, yeah. So I think this is all really timely I, stuff. It is, and you know, I do think capability is a better way of looking at it. You know, it, it's interesting that um, a lot of the data is showing that financial literacy and financial literacy programs may not be as effective as we originally thought. You know, there are things that certainly make us all feel good, but uh, I sometimes say that you know, the United States is, leads the list of uh, close to the top of the list of the world, depending on which study you're looking at, for financial literacy. And yet, that didn't stop uh, us from facing our own very serious economic turmoil um, just a few years ago. And for many in, in society, you know, they're still feeling very much that turbulence, despite having um, a higher degree of literacy than some in other parts of the world. And so I don't know that we can look at these issues by alone, by geography or even income. Um, I think when it comes to programs that are trying to address these issues, that sense of capability and empowerment really is very critical. Looking at heuristics or, you know, rule of thumb um, that kind of and behavioral economics, I think, has proven incredibly powerful uh, things that will help people put their classroom learning into practice. 
Um, and so those are some of the trends I think that would encourage me in, in those areas. But I don't know that that is far reaching enough. And I think it can be still a little bit slow for folks who are working in the field to, um, to look at the new research and to evolve programs. That's, that's a challenge for any of us. And so uh, I think that technology also holds some promise to disseminate best practices and, and new learnings and insights. And when you were asking me about you know, technology and, and the promise of uh, you know, what's next, I also think that, that we should think beyond the kind of traditional paradigm of financial capability or financial access. You know, there's been some really interesting work being done on credit reporting, for example. And you know, arguably, um, you know, there's a lot of work being done today. A lot of it's very time consuming to do know your customer KYC in the financial services space. But in some ways, you might actually have a better um, better luck at assessing whether you're dealing with the person you think you are with a quick social media scan than perhaps you could with an ID, which may or may not be um, what you think you have in your hands. So I think that there's a lot of promise to use technology, new technologies, unlikely technologies, um, social media and, and increasing connectivity um, for things like credit reporting or um, individual verification in ways that people are starting to talk about today, but that are not at all commonplace. I've never heard that before using social media as identity verification. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, some folks are starting to pioneer that with identity verification and or uh, credit verification. Um, so I think that there's a lot, when you talk about technology, a lot of promise that's out there that may not be in the obvious places. Something that you said right when you started talking about inclusive um, economies is that um, it, you know, it, it may sound easy, and um, on the contrary, I would, I, I, I don't think it sounds easy at all. I, you know, I think it's, it's a huge challenge. It's one of the one of the areas we're um, looking at here at the at the Ford Foundation is is around creating more inclusive economies um, globally. And um, we're really struggling to, to, to grapple with the best ways to, um, I guess, you know, I think the word disrupt gets thrown around too much, but disrupt uh, that. I feel like with all these programs and all these technologies, the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is still, um, in a lot of parts of the world, income inequality and wealth inequality. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. And I think the other thing is that change can be scary for people. You know, that, that when you think about inclusion, it, that can disrupt uh, decades, if not centuries or millennia old social norms and social conventions. And that can be very, uh, very challenging all around, but particularly for those who are being asked to engage in different ways. And so I think that you know, as much as we focus on technology, um, a lot of the innovation will need to come through uh, social norms, social conventions, and showing those um, folks who may traditionally have had greater power, who might feel their power threatened, you know, to show them how uh, inclusion is actually a benefit not only to those who have been traditionally excluded, but to them as well, you know, to really shape a vision of a world in which everyone benefits when everyone's included. And, we might give lip service to that, but I don't think that that is 
necessarily the norm in a lot of places or in a lot of people's hearts. You know, I think that that um, economics or power still too often is perceived as a zero-sum game. That I I love everything you just said. I'm, <laughs> you should rewrite that down and and then and blog it. And that's yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, and so you know, it's funny. That's one of the things we haven't talked about in in my work with Western Union. We did a lot of work with our world, our family, really focusing on economic opportunity. And then when we analyzed where we were seeing the greatest return um, and the greatest potential, for us, it, what we saw was it came down to education. You know, a lot of the data showed that. Uh, even one additional year of school can raise incomes by as much as 15%. You know, that that education obviously is very empowering for women, that something like half of the world's out-of-school children um, are considered in some way differently abled, um, whatever that might look like in their in their local community. And so uh, we have we did a lot of work to invest in a program called Education for Better, it was the first time again, social impact driving business insights is nothing else, uh, you know, where we realized that 30% of Western Union's transactions, consumer transactions, are sent for education. And we haven't really looked at that before. And so I do think that questions about building social impact programs really can yield new business insights. But um, education also clearly has the power to shift hearts and minds. And that speaks a bit to what we were just discussing in terms of financial capability and a vision for a more inclusive world. Absolutely. I'd like to, um, if anyone out there has any questions, uh, open, open up the line. Alex, in the meantime, do you, um, uh, where would you like to go? Um, well, Talia, before you actually mentioned using social media as a tool to, say, verify credit reports, um, have you ever heard of using social media for social underwriting? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, would yeah, you, I think, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I was just going to segue with my question because I think um, those little micro loans, say, for example, Kiva Zip has a program where you have very, very small interest loans, microloans, and those are for small entrepreneurs. But I think a lot of times people forget about the small and medium enterprises that are too small for microloans, but they're not big enough for the huge financial instruments offered by traditional institutions. So, I mean, do you see anything being offered to, to this target market? Yeah, I, I think it's a space yeah. where there's, yeah, I think it's a space where there's not enough innovation, frankly. Um, and this has been a need for a very long time. There are some programs that offer grants and sometimes loan, uh, loans. They tend to be uh, you know, still scattered. You know, it's not a place that's systematically organized for entrepreneurs. Um, what I see is some attempts to chip away at different pieces of it. So, for example, you know, growing move toward trade finance, um, things like that that get at a piece of what the need is. But I don't know that there's enough of a comprehensive solution out there, although there's no shortage of places that want to provide advice, um, particularly from companies that are in some way uh, catering to or making money from, um, 
from small businesses. And so you know, I would love to see the likes of Amex and Small Business Saturday and Goldman Sachs and 10,000 Small Businesses and, you know, and, and so many others that are working, UPS, so many others that are working in this space come together with um, more folks who are in the financing space to offer an integrated turnkey solution. I think that there's tremendous opportunity there. And that's just in the U.S. The need is, I think, even more pronounced in other markets. Uh, thanks for that, Talia. And I agree. It definitely is a great opportunity for people that want to jump jump in that. And I actually used to work at American Express, and they're very proud of the work that they do with Small Business Saturday. So hopefully that uh, that extends. Um, Jeff, yeah, did we get anyone? So. Ooh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, uh, sure. Any, I, I have a question. Um, this is a even good scene. I'm director of the MBA program. And um, uh, I apologize. I'm coming even late to the call, and I don't know, Talia, if you've talked about this, but um, I heard you speak at the Aspen Business Institute um, a while ago about a little bit about the transformation of Western Union around the mission of kind of finance for development and inclusive finance. And um, I don't know if you've spoken about this on the call, but would you do you think do you see that that mission has really kind of permeated the company, or is it just part of what the company does, and it's still pretty much a traditional company that is is moving to embrace a more mission driven focus? Yeah, you know, it's been a, a journey over time, and it'll be interesting to see where the journey goes from here. So I would say it really permeated the company. You know, it was from. Um, the path was that back in 2006, a foundation that in which the company had great pride, but roughly 30% of employees gave, and it was kind of an, an annual appeal and a way to partner with agents. Some really innovative stuff, but not necessarily um, part and parcel of how the company defined its core business. And really, over the past 10 years, we've been able to articulate uh, West, that Western Union is a purpose-driven brand. The move has been, as it is for so many companies, from um, so pure philanthropy to corporate citizenship to thinking about cause-related marketing and specifically cause promotions that could drive revenue, then realizing that you really need to go with corporate responsibility to undergird and to have credibility in these other efforts. So we issued, believe it or not, the company's first corporate responsibility report, and I think there's a lot more opportunity there to look at issues like AML compliance and uh, labor practices, things like that, and to show how they are really very, those ESG issues really are very germane to how the company operates. We grew into looking at shared value then, which is a piece that we've talked a little less about on the call. And throughout that process, the company uh, developed a tagline that is actually part of the corporate logo, which is moving money for better. And I think you know that it really is part of uh, the way the company thinks about itself and its core business when it's that integrated into the brand uh, identity so that it's actually part of the logo now. Now, moving forward, one of the things we were talking about is the company does face stiff competition from uh, a range of fintech players and clearly will continue to innovate not only to serve its core, but to diversify with, with new audiences and new technologies. And I think part of the challenge will be how to stay true to that core sense of social purpose uh, while having a very ruthless focus on the core of uh, the company's operation. So I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward. What is the what, you define the purpose? I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear it. What is the mission of Western Union or the purpose? 
Yeah, it is moving money for better. And for better, okay. okay. Better for better. And better clearly can mean different things to different people, but the unifying idea goes back to our world, our family, and, and this notion of economic opportunity. And that can show up in different ways. Um, you know, 30% move money for education. Clearly, small businesses create better, you know, jobs and opportunities in their communities. And there's a whole business solutions component of what Western Union does. We've created shared value products, uh, you know, that were new um, that support NGOs. So that is better. Uh, just the sheer economic impact. Uh, we, we commissioned a study that showed that every Western Union agent in the Philippines um, actually creates 85 non-Western Union jobs thanks to the money that flows through the community uh, after being sent home through Western Union. And so partly it's not just making the claim of better, it's been doing the work to back it up to show exactly what that means for our customers. And again, I apologize if you've already answered this question, but do you do, I mean, do you feel or, or is there a sense that that mission is a competitive advantage vis-a-vis -vis competitors, or is it like a like a must-have at this point? Everybody's got yeah. it. I, I think I think it absolutely has been, and in a couple of ways. There has been an undeniable impact, positive impact on the company in terms of reputation, and certainly has minimized some uh, potential exposures in that area, given the industry uh, in which Western Union operates. It has absolutely driven employee engagement. So I said, you know, when we started the journey, maybe 30% of employees gave to the foundation. Today, 80% give unrestricted. So it's not a United Way campaign, really unrestricted funds out of their own pocket to the foundation. And that gain is similarly reflected in employee engagement surveys. So that has been um, an incredible benefit. And interestingly, uh, yesterday, Nielsen and CECP the Committee Encouraging Corporate Philanthropy reported results of a survey that they do every year at their board of boards, which engages CEOs only. And there's been a little bit of a shift where reputation used to be the number one driver for CEOs of programs like this. And today, uh, far and away, most CEOs this year, and this was just at the end of February, said that employee engagement was a critical driver of, of their purpose-oriented activities. And then in the marketplace, you know, I don't know that Western Union has been as aggressive as it could be, really integrating purpose into all of its marketing efforts over the years. But when it has used um, good cause discipline and cause promotion, there has absolutely been revenue and sales lift that is remarkable. So I think in all of those ways, it has certainly been a competitive advantage. Oh yeah, I was wondering, um if we could shift gears a little bit and get a little bit more into your your history, your what was the traje the trajectory of, of your career and your path that that brought you into this line of work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for me, cause and communications, community building have really always been at the center of what I love. You know, going back to elementary school, really. I, you know, I was the kid who um, cut out little shapes and and glued on fur, white 
for googly eyes and wrote impassioned messages about saving seals and sold that to try to generate revenue uh, for a cause that I cared about. So I think the, even in my earliest days, I thought that there was something about this notion of business. <laughs> I learned a lot that was only moderately successful venture. I do not recommend that to any Bard MBA. <laughs> not a going concern. But, um, but I, got, I went from there to focus on corporate communications and a twin passion, which has been conflict resolution. And I saw a real gap back then and still today in the way companies engage. You know, so many folks really do still push information out. And I don't know that there's, despite all the lip service paid to partnership, enough innovation around how companies listen and partner with uh, all of the different audiences that they care about. And so uh, my master's was uh, on organizational development with a focus in conflict management, um, which has served me well in, in a variety of, of situations. I did a stint in a nonprofit, which I think is incredibly invaluable to understand what it really is like to be the person sitting in the chair where they're responsible for operations and development and marketing. You know, I thought I understood, but I didn't really until I'd had that role, and it's given me much greater perspective and insight now and trying to build partnerships with, um, with various groups across sectors. I've done a lot of consulting work and have built a variety of programs you know, that span the gamut of all the things we're talking about, you know, from volunteerism to strategic philanthropy to uh, corporate responsibility work. I have the great pleasure of working with Carol Cohn and Christiane Miranda at Cohn and Western Union with a client. And, and I really did fall in love with the company and with the, the customers that it serves and um, was really honored to help, uh, I think, shift the way a 165-year-old brand conceives of it conceives of itself in the marketplace. So that has been a real great pleasure. That's great to hear. Uh, one of the strengths, I think, of the, of the BARD program is we come from a variety of, uh, of backgrounds, and it's always fascinating to hear how people end up, um, you know, working in, in sort of social or, or mission-driven arenas. And it seems like no matter what, there's, there's usually some kind of a, a childhood angle where you, you had some some interest. Um, and I have to ask, do you have any of those uh, those seals with the googly eyes anymore? Did you hang on to one? You know, my mother might have one. I have not asked her, but I perhaps should. <laughs> the memory that just came up the other day in conversation, I had forgotten it until uh, just the other day. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, those roots are really showing. Um, <laughs> if, I think, if I find one, I'll send you a picture. <laughs> Get at it. I thought it would be fantastic. But, you know, it's funny, we were, we were talking to Alex at the start of the call around, you know, what's next after graduation. And one of the things that is so optimistic to me is that when I was starting out, you know, even really good volunteer programs or giving it work was not commonplace. You know, there, we still needed to make the case that, that it mattered or was worth doing. And now some of the things that felt innovative, you know, 10, 15 years ago are really an anti-to-play. And the social impact space has really boomed. And you have everything from the great work that FSG is doing with shared value to private equity getting involved in very different ways. This notion of impact investing um, has come a very long way in a very short period of time. You have folks going very deep in new ways with uh, GRI and supply chain work. So I think the number of ways, the number of places that people can go has just exploded. Um, you know, it's no longer just 
you know, a supply chain focus or just giving it work. I mean, there's just a lot out there. And, and, and it, that continues to grow. And so I think, and on all sides, by the way, you know, the U.S. Army has a CR report and has had for a decade. That's amazing. You know, it's really very mainstream. And so I think regardless of the sector, regardless of the geography, um, the jobs are so global and so diverse, no matter what your passion is, I think you'll find a place to uh, live it out and we'll probably go on to create something new as well and move the field forward. Definitely. Um, Alex, are you around? Yes, I am here. No, I was okay. I was going to share, share the same sentiment, Talia, that we are definitely in a blessed time, and uh, I'm definitely thankful to be graduating during a time where companies are more receptive to integrating social and environmental impact into their business model as opposed to just an add-on. But I also see, as we were speaking throughout this entire conversation, how there is such a wealth of opportunity when it comes to the traditional business and how do you get them on board and how do you make sure that people are either leading the pack or the ones that are a little bit behind, how can we get them up to a better performance level? So I agree with those sentiments. And um, I, I have I have one last question, but I don't want to veer us off too, uh, veer us off too much um, unless we have another audience question. Uh, I'd say go for it. Okay, um, so Talia, in the uh, One World Our Family program, um, I know that the core of it was to address some of the root causes of poverty, and one of the players in that game is migrant populations, particularly those that are underserved. And, you know, in today's world, we see the Syrian refugee crisis, we see so many vulnerable populations when it comes to climate change. How do you see in the future financial services companies helping to mitigate all of the ramifications that migrant immigrants will face, all those challenges? Yeah, that's a really big question. And I think ideally it's working on both the send and receive side. So clearly, you know, we talk about impact investing or, or opportunities for capital. In the theory, you know, there's the potential for green growth. There's the potential for new jobs. There's the potential to build better. You know, so in underdeveloped areas, how can we build with really good climate resilient principles in mind? You know, that construction boom, that, that thinking is not yet fully commonplace. Clearly, the investments aren't there yet, but they could be. And I think that there's a huge opportunity to show um, what that could look like and to to steer development in a more forward-looking direction. So I think that uh, finance companies have opportunities to ask questions and to steer, particularly those that do lending, and Western Union doesn't, but for those that do, uh, you know, to steer their investments in ways that keep all of those things, you know, that have all of those things in mind. And then on the sub side, you know, or really throughout the migration process, there's a huge opportunity to support migrants who are incredibly entrepreneurial and to help them integrate faster and more completely into their new host communities and to make more of a difference for, you know, 
Europe clearly needs migrants. You know, the United States also needs migrants. You know, there, there really is a global war of talent. There are demographic issues that are very real and very pressing. And so I think the more that we can be um, a little bit more neutral and fact-based in our discussions and our decision-making, the better off uh, the host communities will be and the better off migrants themselves will be. I think that's absolutely right. And so much conversation around climate change or migration is is based around uh, people being scared of, of scared of change. I think, as you were saying earlier, but you know, if you look at the numbers, when there's migration, um, there's there's economic benefits that come with migration, and there's economic opportunities that come out of new industries that will help um, mitigate and curb climate change. And I, I think that the, the financial sector as a whole is, is going to play such an important role in that. You're absolutely right. What I would say is that those benefits don't happen automatically. And so the real critical piece, and particularly for, for those who might um, point to the downside, is of course there are always downsides there, but we need to be very focused and very systematic and strategic about driving the positive outcomes that we hope to achieve, you know, whether that be uh, investment strategies or strategies for welcoming and integrating migrants. We've learned a lot over the years about how to do those things well and also what it looks like when it doesn't work as well. And mm -hmm. so it is worth um, the time to have a consistent, disciplined focus because it won't just be a natural outcome. Mm -hmm. least Absolutely. I, would say, I should say it won't, but we can't count on it being a natural or inevitable outcome. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, Alex, do you have any final questions? That's it for me on, on my end. But uh, Talia, I just wanted to say thank you so much for such a wonderful, wonderful interview and for spending the time with Jeff and I today and the whole BART MBA community. We really appreciate and we want to acknowledge all of the incredible work that you've done to pave the way because I feel like 10 years ago in 2006 when you were first starting out with Western Union, uh, purpose within the workplace wasn't such a hot topic and you were really a, uh, a maverick doing that work. So thank you for paving the way for us and making it a little bit easier on our end. So thank you for all no. the work that you do. And I really look forward to that seeing is... all the impact you create in the world uh, going forward. Well, likewise. It is just so exciting to have a, such a large and growing community of smart business strategists who know that purpose should and can be part of a core business strategy and the impact that that can deliver for the company and for the world as a whole. So I love these topics. I could chat with you guys about this uh, all the time. So it's just been an incredible delight. And I hope that we can stay in touch. And um, you know, the, more, the more that we do, the stronger the sector will be. So let's not end the conversation here. Absolutely. Are you active in the social media space if, if we or any of our listeners would like to keep up with what you're up to? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, feel free to, to pick me on LinkedIn and Twitter. It's just at Talia Bosch um, and Talia Bosch on LinkedIn. So I'm easy to find and always happy to chat. Awesome. Well, thank you again for, for being with us. I, I also could talk about this all day. I love this conversation. And um, for everyone else listening out there, uh, join us on Friday, April 1st for our next Sustainable Business Friday. We're going to be talking to Michelle Wiseman from Pratt Industries Recycling. So um, should prove to be 
another fascinating call in a in a completely different sector of sustainability. So have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll see you next time on Sustainable Business Friday. Thanks so much, and thank you, Talia. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.